Well, welcome back to week four of our Essentialism series. Over the last several weeks, we have been talking through this concept and this idea of how we discover what's truly most important in our life. And over the last several weeks, we have kind of unpacked this idea that in the world that we live in, in the day and age that we find ourselves, there are a lot of competing voices, a lot of competing choices that we're exposed to, so much so that our ability to manage all of those choices, all of the inputs, all of the ways that we could live our life, it becomes really difficult in, in the process of trying to manage this overwhelming volume of choices, of influence and opinion and voice in our life. It's often easy for us to lose the things that are truly most important. And so we have been looking at some practices that we believe help us rediscover what's truly most important. To kind of clear out some of the noise and some of the distraction and some of the busyness and hurry that we find ourselves in in our day and age. And really begin to settle in and refocus and rediscover what is truly most important. And so we've been introducing these practices. And in week one, we introduced the practice of silence and solitude. And last Sunday, I checked back in and kind of gave you a progress report and an update on how my practice of silence and solitude was going. And if you remember, if you didn't hear, it didn't go very well. I kind of allowed myself to kind of fall into old routines and old patterns of habit uh, where I would wake up in the morning and begin to distract myself with some of the outside noise and, you know, some of the distractions of social media and music and all of the things that really made it difficult for me to prioritize, for me to surround myself with enough silence and enough solitude uh, that I could really begin to draw closer to God and kind of recenter myself. And so this Sunday, or last Sunday actually, uh, I introduced a new practice, and that was kind of the practice of simplicity and fasting about refocusing what's truly most important, knowing how easy it is for us to get pulled this way and that way by all of the things that we may say yes to, and oftentimes at the expense of the things that are most important in our life. And so we kind of talked about how important it is to focus on those few essential things in the world that we find ourselves in with this tyranny of urgent and seemingly important but ultimately kind of trivial things that all vie for our attention. This practice of simplicity and fasting allowed us to say no to certain things so that we could say yes to the best things and the most important things in our life. So to update you on how my practice is continuing to go, I was actually able to implement some of the things that we talked about from simplicity and fasting. I recognized that I had too many distractions in my life that were competing with my ability to practice silence and solitude. And so I had to create an environment uh, that allowed me to really focus. And so this is what I did. I took a closet in my house and I emptied it out of all of the stuff, all the junk that I had put in there, all of the clothes that I bought that I don't wear, all of the different things that have filled up that closet. And I totally emptied the closet and I put a little kind of cushion in there and a little candle. And so this past week, I've actually been able to really kind of protect my time of silence and solitude by kind of simplifying this part of my house that allowed me to refocus on what's most important. I leave my phone in the other room. I don't take it into the closet with me. And so over the last seven days, uh, I can you know, s successfully say that I've been able to maintain this practice because in the morning I wake up and I make the coffee and then I go into the back into that little kind of quiet, protected area. And I shut the door and it's dark and the candle helps me focus. And, and so that's kind of been the way that I've been able to spend my time of silence and solitude effectively was kind of by reprioritizing what's most important and taking some actions and some steps to kind of say no to some other things, to remove some of the distractions that would allow me to focus in. 
Now, I wish I could say that part of that was just because of this, you know, amazing, you know, sanctity that exists in my life and how spiritual I am. But really, if I'm being honest, one of the things that's so motivating uh, in the way that I'm trying to adhere to this practice or these practices that we're talking about is because I feel that it's only fair that if I'm asking you to do something that I'm doing it as well. And because we want all of us to be able to share this experience together, I think it's important that I share my experiences with you. And so there's this huge component of accountability that I feel that I have to stand up here every Sunday and kind of share with you how my practice is going. So that's not just something I'm telling you to do, but that I'm not actually adhering to my own life. And so there's this measure of accountability that has really been motivating, that's really kind of been helpful for me, that in a way kind of looms over my head knowing that I've got to stand up and give account of what I have done this past week. Because there have been seasons in my life where my spiritual practice of silence and solitude has kind of fallen by the wayside. And it's not because I lack willpower or because I don't love God. It's, it's none of those reasons. I think the biggest reason why I oftentimes don't make pra- uh, progress in my spiritual life is because I justify my behavior to myself. Here's what I mean by that is when I don't do it for a period of time, when I allow distractions to get in the way, uh, I am the best person in the world at lying to myself, at deceiving myself as to why it's okay that these things exist. I come up with these extenuating circumstances that grant me permission to continue in this pattern that isn't living up to the expectations that I set for myself. And so when I go months without kind of a regular practice of silence and solitude, when I'm not fasting, when I'm not focusing on simplicity, I come up with all of these narratives, all of these stories as to why it's okay, why my life is so busy. Why? Because I'm a pastor and I spend my time looking through Scripture and reading about Scripture that it justifies my own independent, private, personal practice in my relationship with God. And I come up with all of these stories. It's like I have this like used car salesman in my head who's constantly weaving this narrative and kind of creating this sales pitch about why my current behaviors are okay and I don't need to change my behaviors and adopt new habits and new behaviors. I don't know if you have the salesperson in your head as well. Uh, One of the jobs that I had many years ago before I became a pastor uh, was a brief stint as a telemarketer. Yeah, that's right. I was the person who would annoy you and call you at dinner time and and try to sell you something over the phone. And uh, I wasn't very good at it for a while until I discovered, in my opinion, what I thought the secret was of effective telemarketing. The secret of effective telemarketing, in my opinion, is not my ability to sell you something. It's not me convincing you of the merits of the product that I'm trying to offer, all of the reasons that you need what I have to sell to you. It's creating an environment where you begin to sell to yourself. And so once I kind of learned that shift and learned that technique, it was about asking the right questions that begin to develop this thought process that allowed that inner salesperson that we all have to begin to kind of craft this narrative about why they needed what I was offering to them. And so it was quite entertaining on these sales calls when I would do this effectively is because I would kind of get to hear as this outside observer listening in as people would justify and rationalize the reason that they needed some stupid thing that I was selling them. I mean, there was a period of time where I was selling people cordless phones. So I would call them on the phone and then try to sell them a cordless phone. And hearing kind of the logic and the rationale that people would use to convince themselves why they needed this 
gave me such insight just into kind of the human subconscious and the human psyche and the ways that we constantly deceive ourselves, the stories that people would tell, the ways that we talk ourselves into doing things. Now, it's silly and funny when you think about me as a 19-year-old telemarketer, but you know, this also has consequence in our life. Sometimes there have been choices that we wish we could go back and undo, seasons of our life, periods of time, maybe a decade that we wish we could go back and change. My guess is most of our regrets have come from some decision or series of decisions that we've made on behalf of this inner salesperson in our head. We deceive ourselves better than anybody else. We know exactly what to say to lie to ourselves, to convince ourselves that we should do something or we shouldn't do something or to continue to do something that we know we should stop or to stop doing something that we should probably continue. And we are so good at doing this to ourselves. And so what it leads us to oftentimes is some significant consequences in our lives to, to people that we hurt, to you know, ways that we create damage for ourselves. Because we've all had some category of our life where we have deceived ourselves, where we have self-justified and self-rationalized some pattern of behavior, whether it was professionally, you know, in our job and a choice that we made with our career, or whether it was financially in a decision that we made that we're like, why did I do that? Or why did I over leverage? Or why did I take on those extra loans? And now we feel like we're kind of underwater and we don't know how to get out of it. Or maybe it was kind of a decision that we made relationally, and we're like, oh my gosh. But at the end of all of those decisions, at the end of those seasons of decisions, inevitably we all kind of come to the same place when we ask ourselves the same question. What was I thinking? Because it didn't follow normal logic. It didn't follow normal rational thought. It was this weird kind of twisted justification that kept us in this place or allowed us to make a choice that we would have never normally made. Or if we were the outside person listening in like me on a telemarketing call, you would be like, that is such flawed logic. Why would you ever? Can't you stop? Can't you see what's up ahead? Don't do this. And yet we're the best at lying to ourselves. And so Just like with my spiritual practice, this self-deception that we all experience keeps us stuck in so many categories of our life. And so, because of this phenomenon that exists inside each one of us, there is a spiritual practice that we're going to talk about today that I think helps us begin to undo some of the self-deception, some of the self-justification and rationalization that we live with each and every day. And it's the practice of study and self-examination. Now, On the surface, if you were going to try to market these spiritual practices, study and self-examination isn't really the sexiest. Because we hear this word study and we think about books and we go back to school and trying to cram for tests and all of these things. And, And there is a component of study that is analytical, that is about acquiring knowledge. But really, this practice of study and self-examination is more focused on transformation. Here's what Donald Whitney says about kind of the purpose of the spiritual disciplines. He says it this way. He says, the the purpose of the spiritual disciplines is the total transformation of the person. It's not about just how much we can learn. It's not about all of the ways that we can follow the right choices. But the purpose of the spiritual disciplines is the total transformation of the person. And here's how. They aim at replacing old destructive habits... They aim at replacing old destructive habits of thought with new life-giving habits. 
So this is how spiritual disciplines and the spiritual practices work in our life. They begin to create this total transformation process within us because of this replacement effect that they have in our life. So they take these old destructive patterns of thought, the ways that we think about the world, the kind of the self-rationalization, the choices that we make, the values, priorities that we have, how we think about our relationships, how we think about what's most important to us, and they replace them. They replace them with new life-giving habits. He goes on to say, nowhere is this purpose more clearly seen than in the discipline of study. So of all the spiritual practices, Donald Whitney says that the one that is most effective in, you know, in this process of total transformation, of replacing old patterns and habits of thought with new ones, is a process in the practice of study. He says, the mind is renewed by applying it to those things that will transform it. The mind is renewed because we begin to expose ourselves to these ideas, to these new ways of thinking, these new understandings of how life works, of what's most important, about the type of people that God is calling us to become. And that exposure over time begins this internal transformation. And so the purpose of study is just to increase our understanding and our exposure to these ideas, to these concepts, to these ways of thinking and living, that we can then begin to apply to our lives. And that process is what he's saying is kind of what slowly begins this internal transformation process. This is kind of in different language, but exactly what the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome. They're dealing with all of these competing voices, all of these competing you know, opportunities and choices about how they can live their life. And in the marketplace of all of these ideas and all of these ways of living, Paul kind of gives this, this, them this encouragement And he says, listen, he says, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world. Maybe you've heard this part. But be transformed by what? By the renewing of your minds so that you can figure out what God's will is, what is good and pleasing and mature. So let's break that down for a second. This is what he says in Romans chapter 12. Don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. So there's something that happens when we renew our minds, when we expose our thoughts to new thoughts or to different thoughts or to different ways of understanding, to different ways of thinking. And in that renewal of our mind, as we begin to think differently about things, as we begin to understand more fully about what God is calling us to, the life that he's asking us to live, the way that we should make choices, the way that we should parent, the way that we should conduct ourselves in business, how we should spend our time and how we should prioritize where we spend our money. All of these things, the different understanding that we begin to take on about these ideas and about these categories of our life, Paul's saying that effect begins this transformation in our lives. And it gives us this transformation in contrast to the way that the world operates, it, the way that, all, that the world you know, provides us with all of these choices about how we could live and all of these inputs and voices about what should be most pr- important, what we should prioritize, what our value system should be and should look like. He says, the way that you avoid, the way that you can keep a distance from all of those competing narratives and voices that the world offers is to begin to renew your mind. Because that renewal of your mind begins this inner transformation process. And then, as this transformation process happens and takes place, as we begin to think differently about things, this is what Paul says. He says, it helps us figure out what God's will is in our life. 
the way that we're supposed to live, the choices that we're supposed to make. It helps us identify what is good and what is pleasing and what is mature. And so this renewing of our mind leads to a life of transformation. It's not just kind of this kind of accidental happenstance process where you come to church enough times and all of a sudden you're a new person or a different person or a better person. No, it's not this thing that happens unintentionally and accidentally. It's about a deliberate practice of study, about learning and exposing yourself to a deeper understanding of the way and the life that Jesus is calling us to live. And so this practice of study kind of has a couple of components that I kind of briefly want to walk us through. And really, when you think about this practice of study, it can be applied to a lot of different resources. It can be applied to Scripture and a whole different set of other, other resources that I'll talk us through. But here's what this practice of study looks like in our life. The first step is concentration. We have to focus in on what is being said. So whether you're reading Scripture whether you're reading a devotional resource, no matter what you're reading, whatever you're listening to, however you're consuming the information, you have to concentrate on what is being said. I'm sure you've had this experience like me where you pick up the Bible and you're like, all right, I'm going to read some scripture this morning. And then you, next thing you know, it's like 10 minutes later and you're like, I don't really know what I just read. I don't really have any understanding. I kind of zoned out and I started to think about my to-do list or the groceries that I got to get at the end of the day or this call that I'm dreading that's coming up later this afternoon and our mind begins to wander. This kind of goes back to this process of simplicity and silence and solitude. It really requires this focusing in on what is being said. So we have to concentrate on the words that, are, that we're being exposed to, the ideas that we're being exposed to. Then the next step that we have to make is this process of comprehension. So once we focus in on what is being said, we have to begin to truly understand what it means. The ideas that are being shared and the way that they're kind of being um, communicated, what the author is intending. And so it's really about reading comprehension. I know that's maybe a term parents you recognize as you are trying to help your kids take some of their testing and some of their standardized tests. Is this idea of reading comprehension, it's not just enough to know what the words mean. It's not just enough to know how to pronounce the words or say the words aloud, but these words, when they're connected together in sentences, and then those sentences are connected together in paragraphs, they convey meaning. And so it's really beginning to understand what that meaning is. And then the next step is reflection. It's taking that understanding of what those words mean, what those ideas are saying, and applying them to our life. So it's not just about head knowledge. It's not just about filling our head with all of these facts and being able to quote scripture, but it's about knowing how those ideas, knowing how the things that we're studying begin to apply to our lives. And that's really what this renewal piece, um, how it leads us into transformation, is taking something and it's looking at it and saying, okay, what is this saying? Got it, okay. Now what does it mean for me? Got it. Okay, how do I apply this in my life? Where am I living up to this? Where am I not living up to this? Um, what's confusing? How do I need to do maybe a little more digging to try to figure out what this is really talking about? And that's just the first three steps of the process. So it's concentration, it's comprehension, it's reflection, and then the last piece. And I think maybe this might be the most important piece of all of it is it's repetition. Because we've all read books that if you ask us what that book was about, Years later, you're like, I don't really remember. I kind of forgot the plot, or I don't, I remember it was good. I remember I liked it, but I don't, we're not able to retain the information. 
one of the things that I've done in my life over the last maybe, you know, four or five years is I used to have this uh, reading goal where I would try to read, you know, 50 or 60 or however many books a year. And so I was really trying to impress myself and other people who would ask about my goal for the year, about how many books I read. And so I was kind of reading for kind of competition, really. And so at the end of the year, I would go back and think about the books that I read, and I didn't have a lot of retention about the information that I read. And so I shifted the goal, you know, a couple years ago, and it was like, okay, what are the 10 most important books I could read this year? And what I have found is I'm returning to some of the same books again and again and again. And as I do that, I find that there's new things to comprehend, new things that stand out to me, and my ability to retain that information increases over time. This is why I think scripture reading is so important, because we read it, and oftentimes on first glance, we're like, I have no idea what that means. But we have to kind of revisit and go back to it again and again. And over time, we'll be able, we're able to concentrate on what's being said, and we're able to comprehend what's being said, and then we're able to reflect on it and apply it to our lives. And then our lives go on. And so they talk about how when you read Scripture, uh, it's like you never step into the same river twice because we're constantly changing. And so this one passage that maybe you read at your grandmother's funeral six years ago, now when you read it, it speaks to you in a different way. It's because Scripture is this living, breathing thing. And when we expose ourselves to it, our circumstances change over time. We change over time. Our understanding of it changes over time. And so it's important that we repeat this process of concentration and comprehension and reflection because we are constantly changing. And so the insight and the information and the way that Scripture can speak to us changes and can change over time as well. And so there's a handful of resources that you can use when you think about studying. One of the simplest places to start is Scripture. But I know scripture can seem daunting. And so one of the things that I've talked about over the years is this one-year Bible. This is something that I've used for a long time because it's broken up into Old Testament, New Testament, Psalm, and Proverbs readings for every day of the year. So the only thing that you need to know is what day of the year it is. And so you just turn to that day, you find the readings, and you read it. This is a really helpful place to start. If you're like, well, I'd like to read scripture more, but I don't really know how to do it, I would recommend the one-year Bible. It's a really really good way to jump into this process of kind of regular study. Another thing that you can do is to take something that's more devotional focus based on scripture. This one is based on the Proverbs. So uh, every day of the year is broken out into a different proverb. So you get to read the proverb. And then this is written by a pastor in New York City named Tim Keller. And so he kind of unpacks what that proverb means or some type of devotional surrounded by that proverb. This is another way that you can begin to engage and study is kind of looking at scripture and, uh, and then kind of some understanding about what that scripture might mean for your life. And then there are other resources that you can use in your life that aren't scripture-based specifically. They're more devotional in nature. I know Allie mentioned in our announcements and kind of some of the things that are coming up in the life of the church that uh, she and I are both going to be starting some studies. She's going to be leading a women's study, and I'm going to be leading a men's study. And at the men's study, we're going to be kind of looking at this book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. I think it kind of partners perfectly with the series that we're in right now. And so this is a devotional reading that you can do. It's, it's not necessarily based on um, specific scriptures. Obviously, it's written by a pastor, and so it references scripture. But it's, again, another resource that you can use to aid in your practice of study. Because, again, remember, remember, this is about exposing ourselves to new thoughts, to new ideas, so that we can renew our mind. 
And the renewal of our mind leads to a transformation of our heart. It leads to a transformation of our life, to our choices, our thoughts, our feelings, um, the way that we prioritize certain things, the way that we spend our time and money. All of that begins to change as we spend more time in study in this kind of spiritual practice of study. Now, I know it's been a lot. And you're like, oh my gosh, it's like drinking from a fire hose. I get it. But this isn't just about information that we hold in our head. Because the goal is that this information begins to renew our minds, which begins to transform our hearts and transform our lives. But because of the problem of self-deception, because of the way that it is so easy for us to deceive ourselves and lie to ourselves and rationalize for ourselves that we are making progress or the reasons why we don't need to make progress or we can't make progress, there is another spiritual practice that I just want to spend a moment talking about. And it works in partnership, just like all the others have, but it works in partnership with this practice of study. And it's this practice of self-examination. Because if study, the practice of study leads us to a place of transformed understanding and transformed living, the practice of self-examination actually kind of holds us to the litmus test of whether or not we're actually living that out in our own lives. It's kind of the same thing that happens in school. You, you spend a period of time learning about a topic, learning about some idea, and then you have to take a test to kind of confirm whether or not you really do know it and you really do understand it. This is kind of what we see happening when Paul writes a letter to the Corinthians. He's talking about the importance of testing ourselves to make sure that what we think we're living the ways that we say that we're living, what we say we believe as actually being manifested in our everyday life. And so in his letter to the Corinthians, Paul is kind of instructing them to go through this period of self-examination. This is what he says. He says, examine yourselves to make sure you are solid in the faith. Test yourselves. Check it out for real. Examine yourselves to make sure you are solid in the faith. Don't drift along taking everything for granted. Give yourselves regular checkups, just like you would do with your physical health, just like we do with our cars or some of the other machines in our life. There's regular checkups to make sure everything is in tune, make sure everything is working properly, make sure everything is going the way that we want it to go. We need regular checkups. We need to examine ourselves. He says, you need firsthand evidence. This is what Paul writes. You need firsthand evidence, not mere hearsay, that Jesus Christ is in you. So it's not just, hey, how's your, how, how's your spiritual life going? How are your practices going? And then someone's like, oh, yeah, they're good. Yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, you know, some days are better than others. You know, kind of this kind of casual, avoidant type response to how things are going in your life. It, you know, that's an easy place for us to not be examined. It's an easy place for us to get away with some of this self-deception and this self-justification because we've got a reason why, we've got a story, we've got an explanation that we buy into more than anybody else about maybe the lack of progress that we're making in our own spiritual life and our own spiritual growth. And so Paul's saying, listen, you need evidence, firsthand evidence. Another way that he says this in other places in Scripture is talking about the fruits of our lives. What are the tangible manifestations? What are the actions? What are the effects of the things that we are claiming to live, the things that we are claiming to believe, the things that we are claiming to value as followers of Jesus? And he says, listen, if you don't have any of this evidence, then it's all hearsay. You're just talking a good game. But you really have to demonstrate and create tangible proof about these ways that you are living in accordance to what you say that you're living. He says, so you need firsthand evidence, not mere hearsay, that Jesus Christ is in you. Test it out. 
And if you fail the test, it's okay. But do something about it. And so you can see how this process of study and self-examination work in partnership with each other. Part of it is exposing ourselves to new ideas. And as those ideas begin to renew and transform our minds, it materializes into our hearts and into our life, into our choices and values. And so we understand the world differently. We think differently about how we're supposed to live our life. And so that's the result of this practice of study. But then at the, on the other side of it, we have to examine ourselves and say, okay, now that I know a different way or a better way uh, of living, some different ways that I want to prioritize my values or my time or my resources, now I have to double back and check it out and say, okay, am I actually doing that? If I have been exposed to a, a new sermon series that has talked about the importance of silence and solitude and about the practice of simplicity and fasting, and I've kind of thought differently about maybe why I need those practices in my life, and I've begun to kind of self-commit myself to doing those practices and participating in this practice and this experience with the church, now I've got to double back and say, okay, how am I doing with that? I've kind of got to do what I just did at the beginning of the sermon and check in and say, okay, Here's how this is going, really. In some weeks, it may not be going the way that you want it to. In other weeks, it may be going exactly as you'd hoped it would. But it's this process of self-examination because it's not just about knowledge that we hold in our head or knowledge that we hope transforms our heart, but it's about confirmation that that transformation is actually happening in our life. There's a, a series of questions that I came across uh, in my time in seminary, and they were created hundreds of years ago by a man named John Wesley, who's the founder of Methodism, which is you know, the denomination that this church is a part of. But John Wesley came out of this very studious, analytical, um, academic background. He was a fellow at Oxford College uh, in England, and he was this very smart, very studious person. But he recognized the importance of not just knowing things and not just keeping ideas in his head, but about this practice of self-examination. So as he was kind of, kind of revitalizing the Church of England at the time, this movement became known as the Methodist movement, he developed these series of questions that he would give to people to ask themselves and to ask each other as a way of really testing out firsthand whether or not there was evidence of change and transformation in their life. And so to end our time together, I just want to briefly read through these questions. Now, there's 22 of them. Some of them will sound a little strange based on the language in which they were written. But for me, as I really think about these questions, they, some of them are really penetrating. Some of them are invasive, and they're a little uncomfortable. And so you could imagine that if you begin to introduce a practice of asking yourself these 22 questions every week, how it would lead you and motivate you to really you know, embody the transformation that maybe we're hoping to have in our lives. Because you know, if we say, yeah, 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 I want to do this. I think this is a great idea. And then we go about our lives and we don't actually double back and self-examine. You can see how we can find ourselves in this place six months from now, a year from now, where there hasn't ever been any progress. And like so many of us, we just justify the behavior, justify the reasons why. And so these questions really help us get at the heart of whether or not there's actual transformation happening in our heart and happening in our life. So let me read you these 22 questions. Here's the first one. Am I consciously or unconsciously creating the impression that I am a better person than I really am? In other words, am I a hypocrite? Am I honest in all my acts and words? Or do I exaggerate? 
Do I confidentially pass on to another what was told to me in confidence? Do I gossip? Can I be trusted? Am I a slave to dress, to friends, to work, or to my habits? Do any of these hold captivity over me? Am I self-conscious? Am I self-pitying? Am I self-justifying? Did the Bible live in me today? Do I give the Bible times to speak to me every day? Do I engage in this practice of study? Am I enjoying prayer? That's a hard one to ask for me. When did I last speak to someone else about my faith? In our world, it's often uncomfortable to talk, to have those conversations, to bring up the things that we believe. We've come to this understanding that our faith is a very personal thing. So this is, I think that's an important question. Here's a good one. Do I pray about the money I spend? Do I go to bed on time? And do I get up on time? Do I disobey God in anything? That's a capital yes. Do I insist upon doing something about which my conscience is uneasy? That one's worded a little differently, so let me read it again, but I think it's a good one. Do I insist upon doing something about which my conscience is uneasy? That's the perfect example and question about the way that we self-justify and self-deceive. Am I defeated in any part of my life? Am I jealous, impure, critical, irritable, touchy, or distrustful? How do I spend my spare time? Am I proud? Do I thank God I am not as other people, especially as the Pharisees who despise the publican? Is there anyone I fear, anyone I dislike, anyone I disown, anyone I criticize? Is there anyone I hold a resentment toward, and is there anyone I disregard? If so, what am I doing about it? Do I grumble and complain constantly? And here's the last one. Is Christ real in me? Now, we'll make these questions available to each of you. You can find them on our website, and we'll make sure that they're tagged near this sermon so that you can go back and review them and maybe use them. Or you can just simply Google search John Wesley's 22 questions, and I promise you that you'll be able to find them. But the whole purpose of asking these questions is to to get at this very last question. And that's the question, is Christ real in me? Because that's the goal of this practice of the spiritual disciplines is to manifest the presence of Christ in our life so that Christ truly is real inside of each one of us. That's the reason that we expose ourselves to the practice of study so that we can take on new understandings about what it means to make Christ real in us so that we can live in a different way that transforms our minds and transforms our hearts and ultimately transforms our life so that at the end of each day we can answer the question with a resounding yes. That yes, Christ is real in me. And so this week, I hope that you will begin to take on the practice of study and of self-examination. You may not know exactly where to start, but there are some good, easy steps to begin this process of exposing yourself to new ideas. 
I hope that you will ask yourself these questions or a version of these questions. If, if you have a significant other, it's a great way that you can begin to share kind of the spiritual practice with each other is to ask each other these questions. For some of you, there's like no way I'm doing that with my significant other, and that's okay. But it's important that you begin this process of self-examination. Because like we said at the beginning, it is too easy to justify to ourselves, to deceive ourselves, and to rationalize away why we're not living a more transformed life. And that's the goal of these practices. That's the goal of all of this, is to help us rediscover what matters in our life and live differently because of it. So I'm going to wrap up our time together this morning. I'm going to say a word of prayer that God will be able to help us in these new practices of study and self-examination. So will you pray with me? Gracious and loving God, we thank you for today and this morning that we get to come together and to learn more about you. God, we ask that this information doesn't just stay in our heads, but it begins to renew our minds and transform our hearts so that we can live in a different way so that you are real in our life. God, give us the strength and the perseverance and the resolve to make this so that we begin to engage in these practices of study and self-examination. God, we are grateful that we get to do this together as a church and that you are with us, working in us and through us each step of the way. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.